Welcome to the Legacy Leaders Podcast. Are you doing the best for your client to help them create their legacy? Are you creating a plan that goes far beyond finances to help people ensure that it becomes the driving force behind all decisions? On this podcast, hosts Katie Beth Hand and Stan Miller will help you with growing your practice and your client's peace of mind. Together, they bring the best and brightest minds to share with you how to help your clients develop their best legacy. And now, here are your hosts, Katie Beth and Stan. Welcome to the Legacy Leaders Podcast. My name is Tim Garrity, and I'm the president of Paragon Capital Partners in Pasadena. Today, I'm honored to be your guest host and to interview Aviva Gordon of Gordon Law in Las Vegas, Nevada. Welcome, Aviva. How are you today? I'm great. Thank you so much for the opportunity to chat with you, Tim. Oh, you're welcome. It's going to be fantastic. And I know a little bit about you, so I'm excited to uh, have you share that with our audience. And um, first thing I'll do is just read a bio uh, about you, and um, it'll give a a great background on on all the many things you've done, and then we'll kind of dive into that uh, in more detail. So Aviva Gordon graduated from Boston University in 1990 and with distinction from California Western School of Law in 1993. She's a member of both the Nevada and California bars. Aviva has successfully argued before the Nevada Supreme Court and has several reported cases. She's obtained multi-million dollar judgments and settlements for her clients. Aviva has been repeatedly named a legal elite by Nevada Business Magazine. She was included in the Distinguished Women in Nevada book and designated by Martindale Hubble as a member of the Bar Register of Preeminent Lawyers. Aviva has been repeatedly named as a super lawyer recognizing her as a top-rated Las Vegas business litigation attorney who has met the stringent super lawyer selection criteria, which includes independent research, peer nominations, and peer evaluations. She's also a member of the Nevada Women's Hall of Fame. In addition to her private practice, Aviva was general counsel for the Nevada State Democratic Party from 1998 to 2002 and served on the Nevada Judicial Conduct Commission. She's been a featured speaker on Nevada receiverships, both for attorneys and for the judges of the 8th Judicial District Court. Aviva has provided seminars for the Nevada Legal Aid Center's Small Business Projects Seminar, SCORE, the Henderson Chamber of Commerce, the Nevada Women's Chamber of Commerce, and the Women's Business Enterprise Council. Through her work as a business attorney, Las Vegas has grown exponentially. Aviva is currently the chairperson for the Henderson Chamber of Commerce and was named board member of the year in 2017. She's also a graduate of Leadership Henderson. She serves as a pivotal role as the chair of Henderson Chamber of Commerce Legislative and Issues Committee. Aviva's relationship with the Henderson Chamber of Commerce Business Committee has proven to be of value for those clients who retain her services. The connection she has in the business community as well as the information acquired, increases her effectiveness as an attorney for her clients. As a Nevada business lawyer, she has helped grow the Las Vegas business community for years and continues to do so daily. In addition, Aviva is a board member of the Henderson Community Foundation, the Henderson Library Foundation, and the Southern Nevada Law Enforcement Memorial Foundation. As a Nevada business lawyer, she takes pride in Gordon Law Firm helping the Southern Nevada community grow. Aviva, that's quite an extensive uh, bio, and I know there's even more that you're going to share with us. So it really is delightful to have you here. Thank you. And I know that's some great info that we got, but tell us a little bit more about yourself and your background that maybe wasn't captured in your bio. 
Well, I've been practicing law in Southern Nevada for just about 30 years, which is to say I was like 12 when I started practicing or not. <laughs> um, but, you know, as as important as as all of that is, you know, the the why for what I do, what I do is, you know, my my family. I've got an amazing husband and three fantastic children. Um, all of my children were born and raised here in Southern Nevada. And, you know, by extension from my own family, I, I view my community as family as well. This is a place where I live, work and play, where my family lives, works and plays. And I, I feel it is important for that community that I, you know, become fully or I have become fully invested within the community. Um, and it is a great place to be. Fantastic. And we'll get this into this a little bit later, but obviously you have an extensive background on the business side, but uh, that's morphed into some other expertise, including estate and, and legacy planning. So that's just a, a little teaser for, for uh, some of the coming. But uh, to backtrack a little bit, what led you to enter law school? So when I was a college student, I was a political science major, and I had the opportunity to intern with a congressman and um, see all of the ins and outs of his day and his workings. And at the time, it was my intention to become a lobbyist. Um, towards the end of my internship, he sat down with me and said, you know, essentially, what do you want to be when you grow up? And I said, well, Congressman, I'd like to be a lobbyist. And he said, no, I, I don't think so. You need to go to law school. I said, no, wait, I, I don't want to be a lawyer. I, I want to I want to be a lobbyist. And he said, young lady, if you intend on being a part of the creation of laws, you must also know how the, the implementation of that, those laws work. And your best sort of place to go and learn that is law school. He also said it's, you know, an incredibly portable degree. And he's correct about that with a law degree. You can do all sorts of work, both within the law and outside of the law um, and pretty much any place. And it, it opens a, a number of doors. Um, so I followed his advice. I went to law school and discovered while I was in law school that I really did want to be a lawyer and I really loved litigation and I did very well in appellate and trial practices. And that's just sort of the, the way things evolved. Wow. Well, and um, that's such a neat story because there's two things that kind of jump out to me. One is is the important of, importance of mentorship um, as you're you kind of looking out at future careers. And, and it also it might harken back to a, a different time where, um, I don't know, people went into politics for the right reasons. And I'm sure some still do, but uh, what, what a great story. So thanks for sharing. Oh, absolutely. And, and I agree with you that, you know, and mentorship to me is, you know, it's, it's the responsibility that comes with your own success as well. Um, and I have been really privileged in having some tremendous mentors, both within the legal community and outside of the legal community, and, you know, have taken the responsibility of mentoring younger professionals very, very seriously as well. Absolutely. Well, it's clear that you are also giving back in quite a large way, just the uh, the laundry list of amazing things. Um, you know, sometimes we think of professionals just chained to their desk doing work, uh, but obviously you're out there rolling up your sleeves, giving back in, in many ways to the community. And, and I know you probably love that, but there's also a part of you that just feels responsible to do that as well. Huh? I, I think both of those things are true, right? So, um, you know, I, I have been 
strategic and deliberate in in providing my time and efforts places both that I think can benefit the community as whole, but also where I can get, you know, a, a, a personal reward from, from that kind of giving. Mm-hmm. Well, and uh, it's clear you've been a great gift to Las Vegas and, and the Nevada community at large, but in, in our previous conversations, I know you also um, do work for California residents, and of course, you're um, accepted to the bar of California, so maybe speak on that a little bit too, because that's a, that's a unique expertise. Sure. So I'm licensed both in California and Nevada. I went to law school in San Diego, took the California bar before moving to Nevada and remained in um, active good standing in both bars. Um, the work that I do for California residents or businesses um, is I, I do a lot of work in estate planning for for owners, operators, and just you know residents of, of California. In addition to that, for those businesses that either do cross-border work or are looking to have an off-ramp away from some of the regulatory and taxation challenges that California has. I have helped um, a large number of businesses domesticate within Nevada to get out from some of the challenges that California has for business operations and business revenue. Absolutely. Well, and as a California resident myself, I uh, appreciate you doing that because uh, there is uh, a wide difference of um, legalities and and, and uh, legislation and regulations here in California versus Nevada. So having expertise in both is, is really helpful. And and I know in another conversation, we talked about you being able to help people with both those, but also who might even be moving to a different state than Nevada as well. So yeah, depending upon what, what assuming that they have a business and what that business does and how it is that we can find the best protections for that business. Um, potentially redomesticating those businesses into Nevada, even if they've got operations outside of Nevada. You know, Nevada does not have a personal income tax. It, you know, from a taxation standpoint on businesses, there's a fairly high floor before taxes kick in under any circumstance. Nevada has home state rule with respect to the business entities um, and there is a degree of anonymity to those businesses for those who are looking for that kind of protection. Excellent. Well, uh, jumping back a little bit, one of the many things that jumped out uh, in your bio uh, was the, the fact that you're in the Nevada Women's Hall of Fame. So maybe tell us a little bit about that. So um, I had the opportunity to be nominated into the Nevada Women's Hall of Fame with a number of, you know, amazing women both before me and since me. Um, When I came out of law school and started my professional life, there weren't um, so many women, you know, that were active within um, the legal community, the business community as a whole. Um, And the women who did come before me were amazing and, and engaged in real groundbreaking work. And I know that I stood on their shoulders and hoped to have strong enough shoulders for women who come behind me to to stand on as well. But I think it's a little bit more than that, right? So it's more than just, you know, Women's Hall of Fame or or any of the other sort of work that I do with within the women's business communities or women's, you know, civic communities. And that is to 
get to a point where it's not remarkable for a woman to have success where, right. you know, it, you know, I, I have two daughters and a son. It's as important to me that my daughters have success as my son's ability to recognize that those around him can have success. So it, it's very important to me. Absolutely. Well, it's gratifying as a father of three daughters. Uh, I love to see that. So um, how did you establish your own firm? So when I came to Nevada, I was young and green as a blade of grass on the summer day, right? So I went, I had the great privilege of starting to work with a boutique business firm with two of the most incredible mentors that were around. Um, and one of them um, ascended to the bench and you know, at that time I made a decision to see if that grass would be a little greener in a big firm. It was not. Mm -hmm. um, I went back to that original firm. As I said, one of the partners had become a judge. The other one, you know, was drowning in work a little bit. And um, we came together and, and formed what was then called Ellison Gordon. And we practiced together for about 15 years. Um, we had a client, um, who we did a lot of work for, who at one point asked me if I would go in-house um, within the business. I said, no, you know, I, I, I got a great practice a lot. I got a partner, I got clients. This is, I can help you, help you find somebody. They said, no, you know, we really want you, but we also, you know, want for you to be able to maintain a private practice. So I had the opportunity of being in-house general counsel and maintaining a private practice, um, which was incredibly unique and very, very special. And um, when the opportunity was presented to me, um, I went to my then law partner and my very, very dear friend and said, so this happened and I don't really know what to do about it. He said, let me get some boxes and help you pack up because this is not the kind of offer that comes around, you know, in mo for most people, even once in a career. Mm -hmm. So I took the opportunity and did, you know, both in the in-house counsel gig for a um, property management firm, along with having my um, private practice, the relationship, the in-house relationship ended after several years. And um, I continued on with my private practice. So Gordon Law has been in existence since 2015. Wow. And so you've both worked within companies as well as um, been a business owner yourself. So both those are, are pretty helpful as you kind of navigate what a lot of companies are going through. Right. Because I, I mean, I think that I, I have sort of a, a deeper understanding and, and a feeling of, of both the pain and the pleasure associated mm -hmm. with business ownership, along with an understanding as to how sort of it, professionals within a C-suite and in a larger corporation navigate those waters as well. Mm -hmm. And for those uh, watching and listening who don't uh, live or work in Nevada, uh, maybe give us a little sense for um, how much Las Vegas has grown, but also how much gets done in Reno and Northern Nevada because of the trust situs and things of that nature. So, um, Nevada has grown in the 30 years that I have been here. The population has more than tripled. Um, and part of it, it just, it, it's a remarkable state. It's a remarkable state to do business in. It's a remarkable state to live in from a geographic or topographic sort of standpoint. You can get 
anything that you want or need. Um, you know, the majority of the population are are within Southern Nevada. Um, and, you know, you can sort of divide the state between Southern Nevada, Northern Nevada, and the more rural communities. Um, our um, state capital is in Carson City, which is about 40 miles away from Reno. Um, our state legislature meets there every other year for 120 days. Um, and the business communities as between Reno and Las Vegas are both very similar and very different. So a little like our neighbors to the West in California, right? Not Northern California could be a vastly different state than Southern California, Absolutely. right? And, and for you all, you have Central California as well, which is also wildly different from either Northern or Southern. Um, and, you know, it, it is amazing to me some of the innovative and, and marvelous things that come out of our state, in part, you know, with trust situs and some of the laws that help to support the protection of the ease and protection of trust within, um, within Nevada and, and help to encourage those who don't necessarily live in Nevada to, to form their trust within the state of Nevada. Um, but, you know, we've got tremendous innovation as well in some of the other things that we are doing. So Nevada was one of the first states to put meaningful incentives for some of the blockchain technology. So, you know, from an asset standpoint, you talk about cryptocurrency and other things along those lines, that, that's certainly part of it. Um, but, you know, the, the technology itself and helping to find a home for companies that want to use and and advance that type of that type of work Nevada is really remarkable for that so you get the benefit of I think greater operational freedom than for example Silicon Valley right <laughs> lesser expense than for example Silicon Valley um, and northern Nevada just you know essentially a hop skip and a jump across the border Absolutely. No, that's a great explanation. And it's fascinating that um, a state could take a business friendly stance and really through that generate, you know, multiple economies, right? And 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 <laughs> multiply the state GDP and in such a phenomenal way. You know, we love California in many, many ways, but it's definitely not as business friendly. Um, but we we still have sunshine and plenty of other things going on. But but it seems like Nevada has really um transform from just a, um, you know, state with entertainment and tourism to so much more, as you just said. So. Yeah. And I think that the tourism and entertainment, I mean, that, that's always going to be, I suspect, our primary industry. And as we have developed with professional sports teams, it's gotten a little bit that the complexity of it has become a little bit greater. Um, but I think we, you know, other aspects within our business community that have been somewhat innovative. I think we were one of the first states to um, legalize marijuana lounges and they're still they're just coming online now, regardless of what anybody believes or, or feels with respect to legalization or regulation of marijuana. My point is um, innovative ways to be able to recognize changes in economic drivers and to do so in a way, you know, to limit 
taxes and, and regulation. And, and, and as we talk about, and I expect we will talk a little bit more about, you know, estate planning, which is another part of my practice, um, to be able to assist with the um, generation of, and hopefully the maintenance of wealth and the transfer of wealth, right, without some of the greater challenges that some of our neighboring states have. Excellent. Well, that's a great segue. You have a very diverse practice, which sort of uh, started more on the business side with transactions, litigation, being an outside general counsel. But a uh, an offshoot of that, um, sort of organically, it sounds like, has become the estate planning piece. And um, so maybe speak to how that developed and then uh, the type of work you do. And even if you could share a sort of a, a typical case where you kind of use all these things um, that would show us who the ideal client might be. Sure. So uh, my estate planning practice really came out of a need from my clients, at least as I saw it, where many of my clients are business owners or operators, oftentimes both. And, you know, we, we would work on succession planning and other things within the business. And it became readily available or readily clear to me rather that it, you can have some succession in the business you can have some estate planning, but if you don't fold those together, you're not going to optimize the, your ability to do meaningful planning. And so frequently lawyers become sort of siloed into what a, a focused practice is, right? So on the business side, you've got transactional lawyers who only do transactional work. You've got litigators who only do litigation. And and then, you know, with estate planners who don't necessarily know or understand, you know, how to bring on, you know, should assets be held in a business entity that it is then held in a trust? How mm -hmm. is it that you not only, you know, address the estate planning upon somebody's passing, but liability protection as well and liability protection at a business level, not just at a personal level? And, you know, it, it, going back to Benjamin Franklin about the only certain things of, of death taxes, death taxes and lawsuits is what I would add to sure. that. <laughs> and um, it, so again, it, it came about fairly organically where I saw from my clients that there really was a need for somebody who understood all of the dots to create a, a full picture. And, it, and from there, it went to doing, you know, estate planning for non-business owners as well. Um, but but that's really where it came about. You had asked for an example. I'll tell you that a client, um, this all just happened this week where we've we've moved on a, on a few things. Um, client is the sole shareholder of a business. The business is an operational business and does a, a very good clipper revenue year over year. Um, as the sole shareholder and the sole officer of the company, he started to recognize that, um, you know, he needed some succession planning, um, and, you know, trying to decide, would there be an ESOP, an employee stock option plan, or would there be something else to have succession for those purposes, um, along with his personal estate planning. This client also came from California. So we helped to redomesticate the business from California to Nevada. Um, and now we are working on creating, again, 
the two hands working together with respect to ensuring that the legacy of the business that he has built survives for him and his employees and his family. And also, you know, in, in that same breath, that his family is truly protected as well. And although the biz that business itself is fairly low on the rung of, you know, risk from a liability sort of standpoint, any business has liability risk. So we're, we're finding ways to um, protect against that, along with finding ways to protect against, you know, unnecessary inheritance tax upon his passing and protecting really the, 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 the wealth that he through the business has, has generated. So it passes appropriately. Oh, that's fantastic. And, and uh, maybe we'll just back up a little bit because we, we always uh, throw these terms around uh, and estate planning in general, maybe just give a general definition of that. And then for those who might not quite have that level of wealth yet, um, why it still might be important for, for younger folks or folks with not quite as much in the way of assets. Thank you so much for asking that because there is just this complete misunderstanding or lack of understanding of A, what estate planning is and B, who needs it. Mm -hmm. So estate planning is essentially on, in very sort of broad strokes, you know, a will, a trust, powers of attorney. And when I say a trust, in this context, I mean a revocable trust, something where the owner of the trust puts assets into it and continues to have control of those assets until that person's passing. Mm -hmm. um, and in terms of, you know, what, who should have a state plan, first of all, everybody should. And the reason at a minimum, everybody should have a will. If you do not have a will, then not only does it create greater confusion about where your assets will go upon your passing, um, but the state gets involved. It can take too much time, too much money. Um, and there's some really, you know, horrible stories and we can point to some famous people who died without wills and, and the litigation that ensued. Aretha Franklin, mm -hmm. Prince, Tony Shea from Zappos, where there is still litigation ongoing over how to administer the funds within his estate. Um, so really anybody needs a will. Not everybody needs a trust, but most people do. And for me, the triggers as to when somebody needs a trust is if you have a child or if you have a house or both, obviously. And the reason for having a trust if you have a house and it doesn't matter how big or how small the house is, is to avoid probate. Probate is the process where a court gets involved in transferring your assets upon your death. It can be a long drawn out process and it can be an expensive process. And in this state, and I think in California too, a probate can be based upon the gross value of your estate. So if, for example, you own a house and the market value of it is $200,000, um, it doesn't matter that you just bought it yesterday and you have a loan for $199,000 on it. The gross value of your estate is $200,000 and there is a percentage that is charged against your estate to go up through probate. Yeah. That's funds that are taken away from your family. That's, you know, you need to hire lawyers at that juncture. You need to rely upon strangers to make determinations. 
and it deprives your family or your survivors of the opportunity to meaningfully mourn and celebrate your life. Instead, they're caught up with the business part and the lawyers. And I don't think anybody wants that. I don't think anybody says, I love my family so much. What I wish for them upon my passing is they deal with a bunch of lawyers. Mm -hmm. Nobody wants that. So a trust is a fairly efficient way. And in the scheme of things, not a very expensive way, relatively speaking, to prevent those sorts of challenges and problems within your family. Also, you know, given the sort of aging of our society, not only is death inevitable, um, but oftentimes some type of disability is inevitable as well. And whether that's a permanent disability or a temporary disability, making sure that, you know, and, and part of comprehensive estate planning would provide for who takes the reins of things if you are unable to either on a short term or a long term basis. That's fantastic. It may be the best explanation I've ever heard for all those components. And I was ready to remind you about uh, that last piece there, but you uh, you hit a home run. So thank you. And and maybe one last little nugget or or segue is that um, so many people think it's all about taxes and it really has very little to do about taxes at that level. In fact, there's no tax protection per se, right? So correct. So right now there's a, there's a fairly high protection before estate taxes come in. Um, in a year or so, talk to me again, because that, that threshold is scheduled to drop precipitously. But it really isn't necessarily about taxes. It really is about the transfer of your estate. And if you do so in an efficient way, you can do so um, without spending more money, without spending more time, without having additional challenges. If I can, for to take example again of, of somebody whose primary the primary valuable asset in their estate is a home. Mm-hmm. And if, you know, that is, if it is the intention that that home be sold and the proceeds of that be used to fund, you know, whatever it is that your estate is going to, to have happen. Um, if you go through probate on that, you have to get a court order seeking to sell the house. You have to have a lot of public disclosure about what your assets are and who those assets are going to. And residential real estate markets are very, very sensitive to timing issues, right? We, If you bought a house, for example, a year and a half ago, I can assure you your mortgage is substantially lower than if you were to get a mortgage today, which means that houses would sell differently and and at a different pace, Um, going through the court order process of it will elongate that sometimes by months, sometimes by nearly a year. And if somebody in your, you know, one of your beneficiaries needs the cash, they're not going to get it for a very long time. Absolutely. Well, and you alluded to some changes that may be coming uh, imminently. And I I certainly deal with clients uh, on that conversation whereby they may be fairly successful, very successful. Maybe they're worth 20 or $25 million and they're only in their fifties. And and in this current environment with a really large exemption, they feel like there's no uh, issue in terms of estate taxes. And I say, well, that's true. If you agree to die between now and 2026 and we laugh a little bit and and then they say, what do you mean by that? And so I'll kind of give that to you as a softball to kind of lead into that. Well, I, I am 
it, this is really a little bit more in your arena and also those within tax professional arenas, but right now there is a much higher exemption. In other words, you can transfer without taxable consequences um, for you know, the value of your estate. Um, it is scheduled that in 2025, it's going, at least right now, to drop precipitously to, I think, I think it's $7 million is what the scheduled exemption would be. $7 million is a lot of money for most people. I am not in any way saying that, you know, that this is dire for all people. But to the extent that you've got assets that exceed that $7 million, you've already paid taxes on that. You should do what you can to avoid having your family pay tax or your beneficiaries pay taxes on that a second time. Absolutely. Well, and, and, and one thing I encounter are, are people in their 40s and 50s who've had wealthy parents who are still alive because everybody's living so long. So those assets continue to grow. And the folks in, we'll call it G2, Generation 2, kind of assume that mom and dad have it all taken care of or their attorneys have it all taken care of. And mostly that's not true. And and so I try to educate them that, you know, and it's kind of a perfect storm because it's a generalization, but but that generation is a little less forthcoming with information and they don't tend to share as much for whatever reason. So uh, I try to get my friends to at least start asking questions and be aware that um, there's wealth coming, but at a price and that they should start planning, you know, for, for their future and their kids, because they're probably gonna have more wealth than they realize. The other thing with that, and, and particularly as we see that sort of elder generation going through the transitions that it's going through, um, one of the things that we do, particularly for our clients, is some life mapping so that when somebody passes, um, there is an idea of sort of where the keys to the castle are, mm -hmm. right? So there is identification of where assets are held, how to access those assets, what, you know, what documentation is necessary or not necessary. I, I know this from my own example, my mom passed away a few years ago. And my mom was, you know, a very typical sort of depression era baby. She had probably 30 different accounts, some with hundreds of dollars, some with exponentially more, but we didn't know where anything was, mm -hmm. because that was not it, it was not in her nature to share or discuss that. So we had to go, you know, hunting for assets to find where it was. And you've got a relatively narrow period of time before those assets get turned over to the state for non-activity. Yeah. So one of the services that we provide for our clients, and we've got it all within secured vaults and other things along those lines, is life mapping to be able to say, if and when you pass, here, here is the person that can get this information and here, here's the roadmap for them to, uh, you know, gather whatever assets and, and, and do um, fulfill what the, the wishes are of, of the client in that circumstance. Yeah, that's a huge service. And, and it's actually an issue that's going to get, you know, potentially worse because your mom used to print things out, right? And so there's a paper trail yeah. in most cases, but that's less and less the case. And so now you have passwords and computer accounts and all kinds of stuff, which are sometimes harder to track down. Yeah, and, and with cyber assets too, right? So with assets that if you do not have the appropriate means to be able to access it, we'll be gone forever. And um, 
you know, whether whatever choices people make with respect to crypto assets or NFTs, that those are assets and we should try to ensure that those don't get lost when somebody passes. Absolutely. Well, it's kind of come out in conversation, but what would you say your sort of ideal client situation is in the, in the you know, that brings in all your expertise, but also that you enjoy working with? Um, mostly I enjoy working with people who want to invite me in. In other words, that are, I recognize that, <coughs> pardon me, I, I have tools that I can share with them and are, are receptive to that. Um, typically what that means in, in real sort of speak, um, business owners or operators who, you know, really are sort of small business owners and operators, um, along with folks that really have a, a desire to learn the best ways to protect themselves and their businesses. Um, one of the things you had mentioned in, in reading my bio is the connections that I have within the community, which I think is a real value to my clients in that, you know, as, as Southern Nevada has grown so much and so quickly, I, I've got resources pretty much within any field that somebody needs, whether it be a financial advisor, whether it be a CPA, whether it be a realtor, residential or commercial, whether it be a contractor, you know, for, to, to be able to assemble a team. I, I don't get anything from that except knowing that my clients are being well and holistically taken care of. Well, this is great, Aviva. It's been so informative and informational and um, kind of inspiring as well. And obviously your background gives you a unique skill set to work not only with business owners, uh, corporations, but also as, as that kind of bleeds into estate planning and legacy. Any closing thoughts? I, I really just very much appreciate the opportunity. And to the extent that I am able to be of service, it, it is my greatest privilege and pleasure to be able to be that you know, within my community for whomever may need it. Great. And if someone wants to get in touch with you, is the best way your website? Um, my website, which can give a direct link to reach out to me directly. So it's www.gordonlawlv.com. Um, my email address is agordon at gordonlawlv.com. Um, and, you know, all of my information is on my website. I've got, you know, a a great guy who does all sorts of interesting social media posting for me. So you can follow me there as well. Awesome. Well, thank you so much again and best of luck as you continue to build your practice and serve clients. Thank you so much for the opportunity. You've been listening to the legacy leaders podcast with Katie Beth hand and Stan Miller. For more information on them and the show, please visit pinnaclelegacylaw.com. If you like what you've learned today, do share the program with your friends and subscribe wherever podcasts are found.